Hello and welcome to The Intentional Clinician. I'm your host, Paul Krauss, Licensed Professional Counselor. Today's episode is part one of my conversation with Mike Speakman. We discuss many topics on a range of issues facing our society today. We discuss how parents could help drug-proof their child, how recovery works, what addiction is, what to do about addiction issues facing our community. We talk about recovery from addiction. We talk about cultural rites of passage and the difficulties of finding those in today's society in the United States. We discuss personal growth through relationships, family, community, and counseling. We also get into how delayed emotional growth in children may contribute to illegal drug use as an adult. We discuss how parents can intervene successfully to help an addicted child, whether that child is a young child or an adult child. And we discuss how everybody can lend a hand to their neighbors and children in their neighborhood to navigate some of the difficulties facing our communities through uh, different forms of addiction. Uh, Basically, this is part one. In part two, we discuss anger. I hope you enjoy my conversation with Mike Speakman. I know I did. He is a great mentor, and he has been doing this work for over 30 years. He is a very wise individual, and he is the founder of the PAL groups, which are now in many states, called Parents of Addicted Loved Ones, which is a support group for parents. I have got some feedback asking to explain my new clinic in Grand Rapids, Michigan. As you know, I previously practiced counseling in Phoenix, Arizona for nine years. Now I am permanently in Grand Rapids, Michigan, and I am now working at a clinic called Health for Life Grand Rapids. This clinic has, of course, myself doing counseling. I do a lot of EMDR therapy here in Michigan, as I haven't met that many other EMDR practitioners, and there seems to be a demand for trauma work. Also in our clinic, we have another male counselor who works with teenagers mostly and their parents, and we have some fantastic female counselors Um, concentrating on a wide range of issues. We have somebody who works a lot with moms, young mothers. Uh, We have somebody who works with everybody. She does fantastic work with anxiety and depression. Very awesome stuff. And a few other folks who are at our clinic. So if you want to know more, go to healthforlifegr.com. If you are looking to exclusively work with me, you can go to paulkrauscounseling.com. We also have a naturopathic doctor who is licensed in the state of Arizona to practice medicine who is giving education here in Michigan as part of her satellite office from her Scottsdale office. That's Dr. Nicole Kane. For more information, go to www.drnicolekane.com. And that is the update on the clinic. So I hope you enjoy the interview. Let me tell you a little bit about Mike before we get to the interview. Mike is a life coach and licensed substance abuse counselor with a passion for helping parents save a loved one from addiction. His knowledge base comes from experience and a successful career of helping people with substance abuse addictions in residential treatment centers since 1988. He has found a way to translate his expertise into practical steps parents can take to best help their child that is suffering from an addiction. Mike is the founder of PAL, Parents of Addicted Loved Ones. This is a support group of parents helping parents. Groups meet every week to offer education and support at no charge for parents trying to save a son or daughter from addiction. There are presently 19 PAL meetings in the Phoenix, Arizona area, two in Tucson, and groups in 17 other states as well at this point. And it's growing. Mike is the author of a book. It is called The Four Seasons of Recovery for Parents of Alcoholics and Addicts. His book has been called a handbook on recovery from addiction. 
It is designed to guide parents through the predictable but often unknown stages that adults and people with addictions and also adolescents go through to finally achieve a successful recovery. I've read this book, and this book is about that and so much more. It's about boundaries. It has scripts for conversations. It's fantastic. We'll talk about that more later. Mike also has another area of expertise from his work in treatment centers. In 1991, he developed the first anger management conflict resolution training program for the Salvation Army Adult Rehabilitation Center in Phoenix, Arizona. Since then, he has developed and taught workshops for counselors, the general public, high school and college students, and in the criminal justice system. In 1993, Mike developed the SMARTS training program, a results-based anger management program used in treatment centers and jails across the country. Um, There's a lot more we could say about Mike right now, but uh, let's just get to the interview. So, Mike, welcome to the Intentional Clinician Podcast. Thank you. Good to be here. All right. So, to kind of get started, uh, we should probably start with a story, which is, uh, you know, you've got a lot of accomplishments, a lot of things we want to talk about, um, a lot of knowledge to share with our listeners. But first of all, how do we know each other? Well, that's an interesting story right there. Uh, uh, I was referred to you uh, as a person who works with adolescents with uh, problems, substance abuse problems and other problems. And I work with parents of uh, adult children. And uh, so I thought, well, we might get together here so we could refer back and forth. And then uh, after I got talking to you, I found out that we had a lot in common as far as the way we approached uh, the issues and trying to help people, that we just really had a a lot in common in that area. Uh, And then we started talking about doing a a program, uh, expanding the anger uh, curriculum, which I developed many years ago, expanding it out to more and more uh, reach of treatment centers, and uh, also to getting it eventually into jails. That's right. We uh, were working on our project called Anger 101, which you own the website to, and uh, we found out that this was quite a large project. Yes. Uh, I think yeah. it's all right to talk about a little of our intent for any of the listeners who might be interested. Uh, Mike has developed great anger management and conflict resolution workbooks and just basically a whole book, a training program. and. We had gotten together um, with a former chief of police, was it? Or he was, he was a, a, a police commander at one point. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Kim. Mm-hmm. And uh, we were working with him also on trying to make a series of videos, mm-hmm. which would be much easier to distribute to jails and prisons uh, for people incarcerated to earn, learn anger management skills and life skills so that when... Uh, they got out that they could be more productive in society and have less incidents of anger, which may have possibly gotten them in there in the first place. Yes. Um, we realized that making these videos and writing this was a huge undertaking, almost almost more difficult than writing the book in, in some ways mm-hmm. because there's so many elements. So uh, we were not able to get our funding together for that and the time available, uh, but we might still do it in the future. We'll see what happens. Mm-hmm. Yep, that's right. Uh, we're hoping to possibly do it in the future, but right now we have the awesome book you made, so we can use that for working with people. Um, go ahead. Do you have any comments? No, I just uh, it's just that I'm I'm uh, I'm retired, semi-retired, and I'm working harder than I than I did when I was working full time at treatment centers. Right. <laughs> so you and you still see people. 
um, you see clients now, a lot of parents of, of uh, young adults who are, have addiction issues. Is that true? Yes, I still have my private practice where I work with uh, parents who uh, have children with substance abuse problems, and uh, I help them uh, develop a plan for how to best help help their child. It's uh, it's very confusing for for parents today, and and rightfully so. Yes, absolutely. Uh, I want to get into kind of more about what can parents do in emotional development after I kind of hear a little bit more about about Mike Speakman, so our listeners can know who you are. So. Uh, now, I said I was going to ask you about your story, mm-hmm. but uh, we'll have to do a little bit of an abbreviated version. Uh, well, basically, my story um, starts with uh, my being on the, on the garage floor in my house uh, with the garage door closed and the car engine turned on and me laying down and, and wanting to end it all. I was 36 years old. My wife had left me. She had left me because of my own addictions. Alcohol was one of them. Uh, there were other things going on. Uh, not proud of that. But that uh, became, uh, as looking back, that was my bottom to get my attention to get some help for myself. So that's what I did do. And, yeah. uh, that was my bottom. So uh, 10 years after that incident, uh, I was age 46 years old at this point. Uh, I'm working for Salvation Army. Uh, and uh, as a license, as a substance abuse counselor at that time, and that began my new career. So here I am today. Wow, that, that, is... that was 1988, by the way. Yes. Yeah. In 19, when you were 46. Yes, exactly. So you have a lot of personal experience going through a, a lot of the things that you're helping parents and also young people sometimes with today. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. I don't know anybody else. If they didn't have some kind of a story involved with this, why they would want to be in this field? Yes, we've all been affected, either personally, directly. Most likely, most people have been in this field have been directly, personally impacted, and/or having family members or close loved ones impacted by all sorts of, you know, different issues in um, depression, uh, you know, anxiety, substance issues, everything going yeah. on. So. Tell me a, a little bit more. Uh, I know that was a, that was really abbreviated. So, <laughs> a little bit more about you. Just anything that kind of comes into your head. What made you after you hit bottom? What what helped you get get back to where you are now, helping so many Actually, people? That's a good point. Actually, counseling. I tell people counseling saved my life. So the the first thing that I did uh, uh, when I caught myself wanting to end it all and had that sort of awareness that no, I'm not ready to end it all. Uh, and before that, I was unwilling to ask for help. So okay. now at this point, I tell people it scared me humble. So at this point, uh, it scared me that I was really willing to do that. It wasn't that I wanted to die and end it all. It was that I couldn't get rid of the pain, the emotional pain I was feeling from the loss of, of my wife leaving me. It felt like I lost my whole family. I had two great children, and I didn't lose them, but it felt like, in the divorce, I felt like I was losing them. So... Uh, that pain drove me to attempt suicide, which then was a wake-up call for me to finally ask for help and receive it. So I remember that what I did was I stood up and turned the car engine off after about probably about three minutes. I went in and called my sister and asked for help. And she gave me the name of a good counselor, and uh, that began my, my recovery program. I had no idea where I was going and that 10 years later I would be in this field. Wow. And so then you went through counseling and 
you did the work. You did your inner work. Quite a bit of it. <laughs> Quite a bit of it. I was a tough nut, nut to work on. <laughs> I kind of feel sorry for the counselors that I worked with. And uh, my brother got work, uh, got help for himself uh, a couple of years later uh, through the AA program. So his pro his help came uh, from uh, AA, and uh, which is a great program. And mine came more through counseling and groups. Mm-hmm. And uh, so that's that's what got me into this field. Well, I really appreciate you telling such a personal story on the podcast. I'm sure our listeners will hopefully appreciate it because, you know, you're being real. And I know from, uh, you know, being your friend and, you know, you're kind of a mentor to me that you definitely keep it real and do not, you know, cut corners, so to speak, when you're talking to people. And But you're very compassionate as well. Well, I, I try to be the... The only thing is, it's hard for me to do that with my wife. So that's the challenge. <laughs> so I can do it with other people easier. You know. Yeah. But I'm working on that. Yeah. It's a, it's a work in progress. Yeah. It's always, um, you know, it's interesting. That's a whole other topic. But it's interesting how when you're around your family members that you've been around your whole life or, you know, your wife who you've been around for how many years? I don't know if you've been together now, but a mm-hmm. while. Yeah. Um, that... Uh, you've got all these coping skills, all these great ways to resolve conflict, anger management. You know, we've got our higher self. We've maybe been doing some work on empathy and love and uh, humanizing people. And then they tell you that, you know, you forgot to do, uh, you know, you left dishes in the sink. And the next thing you know, you're, you know, back to <laughs> back to level one where you feel like, oh, my gosh, I was I, I just became a 21 year old again for, mm-hmm. for about 30 seconds. And, Something like that. Yes, that's the challenge that I have. I would, I, it's hard for me to apply to myself, but my wife lets me know that. So she's, she's helping me grow, and I feel like I'm helping her grow. That, that's great. Yeah. I remember uh, you actually, that throws uh, into my mind uh, a comment you made a while ago about, uh, to me, when we were talking about friendship and some difficulties I was going through with some friends at the time. Uh, I don't know exactly what you said, so I'm going to turn it over to you. But my gist that I got from it was that you're interested in becoming friends with people and being friends with people and staying friends with people that are interested in continuing to grow as people. Yes, I think that's important because um, a lot of people are are at a certain time in their life, maybe not interested in growing, maybe more interested in in having a career and having what the world offers to us to be successful. And that's the way I had been. That's all I had been interested in at that time. And the concept of growth made no sense to me, whatever that is. Uh, but now I realize it's wanting to become a better person uh, by asking for help and receiving help. And, uh, you know, and so I'm in the counseling field now. But back before my wake-up call, I would I'd be a million miles from a counselor. There's no way you could get me to, to, to talk to one. So it's scary to grow. And, uh, and But I think that that is a subject for all of us to consider. We have a lot of young people today who are looking at our society and wanting to grow up and, and be successful and looking for answers because they are able to see a lot of people who seemingly have everything that the society is to offer us as far as being successful, career, money, uh, fortune, fame, you know, family, all of that, uh, but they're not happy. Mm, There's something missing. Yes. And I think... I think the children, uh, the young people today, uh, they're so smart compared to, you know, they're smarter every year and they know so many things. They can know so much that they 
they see sort of the cracks in our, our cultural uh, knowledge base. And, uh, and it's like it creates a division and challenge for us as, as parents. Uh, and so I think uh, we started off talking about friendship. So uh, I know myself, I want to grow and I want to be around people who want to grow because we can be more honest with each other and confront one, one another when we need to, be more caring. And, um, and, and so that's, to me, that's very important, a very important thing. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, um, yeah, we're almost getting into some of that, talking about that emotional growth and development. I think we'll, we'll save that for a moment. Um, is there anything else, you know, you want to tell the listeners about yourself before we move into what you're interested in these days? Well, you mean sort of self-revealing? Oh, well, or... self-revealing or anything that you are, you know, pondering about your own life that you feel like could be of value to well, the that's people a good on point. the that's a, good, that's a good that's a good point. Yeah. there's several things number one i'll be 75 in september right and i'm contemplating my own demise right i mean it's interesting how when i was young it's like i'm gonna live forever so i'm not even interested in life insurance right you know let alone uh, can consider buying it. i don't even want to hear about it so there comes a time in a person's life when uh, and i heard uh, denzel washington say it in a movie one time talking to a younger a younger man he was working with, he said, I've got less uh, life ahead of me than I have uh, behind me. You know, and I had never heard it put that way, but that's an important, that's an interesting way to put that. And uh, so it is something that I think about. I, uh, I try not to, to worry a lot about it. One of the interesting things that I heard uh, recently talking about facts of suicide, because I'm technically a survivor of a suicide attempt. I don't even think about right. that that often, but but the, the highest rate of suicide in our society is men age 75 and older. Really? Yeah. So I thought that was interesting. We hear a lot about young people committing suicide, which right. that is a real tragedy, in my opinion. Uh, uh, that, But it's interesting to, to note that. And so... Uh, so that's something that's that's uh, on my mind that I that I talk about and uh, and deal with. Uh, the other thing is I really enjoy playing poker. Okay. So, <laughs> so I, I switching subjects here. I, I preach to the people I work with, both the parents I work with and the addicts and alcoholics who occasionally I, I get an opportunity to work with, but uh, much more parents and, and spouses and other family members. The importance of having uh, fun activities in your life. Right. Recreation is is something important, so I can't do the active physical recreations stuff like so much anymore. But I enjoy poker. I enjoy going to, to movies. I've got friends who are interested in growth, and I have other friends who are not. We just don't spend a lot of time with them. Sure. So it's not a it's not a, a put down kind of a thing. Sure. Yeah, that's right. I mean, I remember that. That was the other part of it. You said that you had friends from your past and. And you still got together with them. It's just that you weren't spending as much active time with them because of just your different paths at that moment in life. Exactly. Because, exactly. you know, it's important to welcome all comers. And I know that's something you do. You welcome all. Uh, when I've been to any of your talks or, you know, seen the attendance at a PAL meeting, you're, you're, you're welcoming all walks of life, all different cultures, uh, people from the vast uh differences in socioeconomic status, um, all realms of um, uh, religion, political thought, whatever. They're all welcome at your talks. They're welcome at your PAL meetings. And I think that's a really important point. 
Yes, that's something that I that I sort of embraced. And then when I went to work for Salvation Army, I found that as a, as a giant organization that they are, they embrace that exactly. And I was really pleased and really enjoyed my time working with them. I wound up working uh, uh, about 13 years altogether with Salvation Army, uh, nine years down in Phoenix and three and a half years up in uh, California at, uh, at the treatment center up there. So I have nothing but good things to say about, uh, about Salvation Army. Even though yes. they're a fundamentalist uh, Christian organization, they are yes. very, very accepting of everybody. And uh, so, anyway, nice to you for you to notice that about me. Thank you. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. It's one of the things that um, you know interested me. You know about you. One of the things was when I read your book, I was just floored at the way um, there's certain authors. You know, you read their poetry or you read a book, and you're like, oh my gosh, they're reading my mind. Well, when I read your book, the four seasons of um, what is how does it say the four seasons of recovery for parents of uh, alcoholics and addicts, I w- I was at first you know thinking well oh this is just about substance abuse and recovery I've heard all that mm-hmm. and then when I and of course that's my assumption brain that keeps happening sure. and then when I read it I was just floored I was thinking oh my gosh you were reading my mind I've had these conversations with people I've had these conversations with people possibly in my family. Um, I did not, and, and it helped me with my own boundaries, not even with, uh, even dealing with the substance issues, but just dealing with life. Um, I couldn't believe how, and you had so many tools in there. And, uh, then when we got to talking more and, you know, having coffee and, uh, having to, you know, finally dash off to our destinations three or four hours later, uh, mm-hmm. even when we weren't working on the anger project, just chatting, I, uh, I realized, you know, you, you really had this opening, you really had an open mind to anything. Uh, you, you, you don't seem to, you know, just make up your mind about something and stand still. So you're, you're still growing. Um, you're open and you have a lot of life experience that has, I think, informed your work. Um, and so there's, uh, no biases going on. And, uh, I really enjoyed that about you and, and how you're, um, obviously continuing to grow and then how we you know as a person a younger person I'm only in my early 30s we could just I mean obviously I don't have as much life experience I don't have as much to draw from anecdotally but we could just talk about any topic and we've and and it was a lot of fun so I appreciate that thank you thank you uh so I've learned a lot from you um I wanted to uh I know we're going to talk about pal we're going to talk about your book uh your anger book and some other things coming up here, but I wanted to talk a little bit about, you know, what are you interested in these days? These days, one of the things that I'm working on is a, uh, a book for parents of adolescents. Okay. Because the book uh, that you're referring to is for parents of adult addicts and alcoholics. And That's right. There's a, there's a big difference there. Uh, adults are empowered and uh, adolescents have no power uh, in our society legally. And that's that's an important distinction. So the book, the working title of the book is How to Help Drug Proof Your Child. Oh. And I'm very quick to say in the book several times through the through the book, there is no way to drug proof a child. However, sure. uh, there are things you can do to help. And that's why the word help is in the title. And, and the, the chief among those ideas is to be able to uh, reduce the benefits and payoffs they get from using drugs. So that is something a parent 
parent cannot stop them from experimenting. I, I believe most children will, most adolescents, because if we live in a drug culture. Sure. This is, the, this is the time we live right now. But there's some things parents can do that, that's going to help their adolescent uh, not get so much benefit from the use of drugs. People who continue to use them, the adolescents who continue to use them, it is serving a purpose for them. It is helping them in some way. Not always obvious. So the book is going to help the, uh, parents understand there's some things they can do while their child is still an adolescent, approximately age 12 to 18. Uh, and it'll give them some, uh, some ideas and some practical tools they can do. Now, uh, I'm going to ask you a prep question real okay. quick. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to talk a little bit about Adolescent Community Reinforcement Approach, yeah. the ACRA program, which I'm yeah. trained as a trainer to train mm -hmm. and I'm a certified counselor in. But I want to ask you a question, so I'm priming you. Oh, that's Do you good. mind giving a couple tips when I'm done talking about maybe one or two things that are on your mind that can help parents drug-proof their kids? No, I don't mind that at all. Okay, so I'm going to quick jump into it. Uh, okay. Interesting what you're talking about is I, I did talk about the training program that I'm part of, uh, that I, I did work for a long time with adolescents. Now I'm working a lot more with young adults, and I'm working somewhat with the parents of young adults like you, although if you're around, I'll refer them to you usually. Um but uh, one of the things we talk a lot about in that program is pro-social activities. Getting your kid involved in one or two pro-social activities with positive role models or a team-based approach or a music or an art or something like that. But at least something social um, really helps. Uh, it's Pro-social, of course, is the opposite of antisocial yes, behaviors. Exactly. Exactly. Uh, another thing which really helped in the program was parents really investing in loving their child through this and working with their child on um, what we call the happiness scale. So, you know, a lot of times when teenagers are upset, everything is either wonderful or terrible. But if they're upset, of course, everything is terrible. My parent is terrible. My parent is evil. Uh, so what we would do is have the parent fill out a happiness scale about their relationship with the child. And, and it had issues involved. So happiness everywhere from 10 being very happy and zero being very unhappy mm -hmm. so that people could see the nuances and see the gray in the relationship with their child and what's going on behaviorally. And also the child would then fill out a happiness scale about their relationship with their parent and things at home such as allowance or grounding or being able to go out. And then when we would look at that together, and sometimes we wouldn't just reveal it because the adolescent would be uh, doesn't want to let their parent know what their answers are, but we would they would uh, pick a couple topics that they wanted to talk about or negotiate with with the parent. Mm -hmm. And when we could make peace and maybe just negotiate on one item, which of course a lot of times with adolescence is allowance or letting me go out, mm -hmm. um, and the parent would negotiate a little bit with, of course, their upset part with their child was grades or chores. Mm -hmm. If we could make brokers some type of deal, you would see their happiness as um, parent-child go up, and you would see their understanding of each other come up together. And, and if parents can have that empathy, because they're usually angry, I, I don't want my kid being a drug addict, I, they can't have green hair, they can't do this, they've got to wear a tie and go to you know real estate school and church every week, you know, they, they have these really rigid sure. expectations, the child rebels against that, they're, they're going to they're gonna rebel even further. Um, so uh, when the parent had the empathy for the child, and then the, and then the child, of course, plays off their parents. Child, children are sponges for what's going on, less about what's being said, more about what's being done with their parents. So when they saw their parents flip the empathy switch on, mm -hmm. even if their parent was still lecturing them sometimes, they could then identify with the parent and be vulnerable and open up about what's really going on at school. 
And as you said, drugs are ubiquitous. Yeah. I used to say to the kids in the program, I can't stop you from using drugs. Yeah. We could walk out this door. And when I, when I meant that, we were working in a rough neighborhood in Phoenix called Maryville. Mm-hmm. And we could walk out this door, and within 10 minutes, I bet we could score some drugs. Absolutely. So it's not about being away from drugs. It's about finding things that reinforce not using drugs and making your life happier. Because if your life is happier, then you're, you're not going to be using it for a coping mechanism or to fit in or to escape from the pain of your mm-hmm. household or whatever. That turned out to be a longer tangent than I thought. <laughs> so <laughs> do you have any tips here uh, for parents who are trying to drug-proof and help drug-proof their child. Yes, uh, one of the tips that uh, that's going to be in the in the book, one of the chapters is going to be about, and some detail about how to pull this off, and that is uh, allowing uh, your adolescent uh, child, at times, this isn't all the time, every time, but it's also never, and so that's what it tends to be with with our uh, with our adolescents. This is at times allowing them to have an opinion that's different than yours uh, and validating it and, and letting them know it's okay for you to have a different opinion from me. Uh, that's not saying that it's okay to do the action associated with the opinion. So we're separating their opinions from their actions. And, uh, and so a good example of that would be, it's okay for you, Johnny, you're 17 years old, for you to believe that this country should legalize heroin because you read that it is legal in England, which it is. Oh, okay. So, uh, you know, norm, notice what normal reaction a parent would have with a 17-year-old son who says, uh, you know, I think heroin should be legal in this country like it is in England. Oh, my goodness. So here's an example yeah. where a, a parent would have another choice here, and that would be to say, you know, Johnny, that's a valid point of view. It's not my point of view. Uh, but I want you to know that you can have an opinion different than mine. However, I also want you to know at the same time that if you get involved with it in any way, shape, or form, I'll kick your butt from here to China. (laughs) So I'm separating the actions from the opinions because from a sense of empowerment, a person needs to be able to hold their own opinions and feel like it can be validated. So that is one of, uh, there's three basic uh, skill sets that that we're, teaching them and that's one of those that we're teaching them because what we're trying to do and to understand the, the importance of that is to see some basic child development and that's why I started the parent support group is because I could see the uh, the difference in how parents were reacting uh, to an addicted adult and again all the treatment centers I worked in were adults Right. So I could see how parents were handling an addicted adult child versus how a spouse was handling their addicted spouse versus a brother or sister handling, as you can see, different relationships there. The parents, it was, obviously it's different, you're the parent, but it was different in a certain way. It was different in a certain way. It was different uh, in, a, in, a, in a way that only child development concepts, simple child development concepts, could explain. But then the explanation of those child development concepts tied in with the addiction uh, and uh, really opened the door for a greater, deeper understanding as a parent, how I can help you if you're 18, 28, 38, 48, 58 Mm, years old. Because with the addiction, it doesn't change, even though a lot of things change in a person's life, as long as they're actively uh, in their addiction, uh, you know, it doesn't change. 
the, the dynamics stay the same. So teaching them about adolescent behaviors and the fact that we live in a culture who doesn't really have a structured rite of passage, uh, you know, this is a this is a, a problem with our culture. This is no one to blame specifically. It's not parents' fault or sure. grandparents' fault. That basically what I was saying is that child development issues collide with addiction issues in the drug age that we live in to produce potentially hopelessness in parents. Right. So that was the way to sum that whole issue up. And so then the concept is, okay, how does childhood development fit in there? Well, basically, uh, you're still parenting an adult as if they were still a child. Right. And not even realizing that because there was no interruption point to say, okay, I'm a man now. I'm a woman now. Start parenting me different, Dad, uh, Mom. Yes. And for, the, and for the parents to be able to say, yes, you're a man, you're a woman, we're going to start feeding you, that is a great big blank spot in our culture. And, uh, and it gets worse every year only because we continue to move forward further uh, with the modern-day technology of communication, but uh, farther and farther away from the, uh, the village concept that we had uh, many years ago we lived in villages. Right. And so there was a natural uh, camaraderie between uh, people. Uh, and so in the village, you trusted your neighbors. You knew your neighbors. Your neighbors knew your children. Your neighbors could in interact with your children. Your neighbors could impart a disciplinary uh, learning event for them. Right. And your child... Hold them accountable. Hold them accountable. And your child could actually learn an unnamed life adult coping skill because we live in a culture where they're unnamed. 100 years ago, 90% uh, of the population lived in farming communities. Yes. And so it really lent itself to teaching through teachable moments uh, uh, what we could call adult coping skills. Right. So we live in a culture that not only do we not teach them, we don't even have a list of them. So there's just sort of this uh, hope that it just somehow happens magically. Right. So... And, and that's is, where Pal came from, was from that. Right. And so we're moving into this discussion a little bit. We'll talk, we'll get into Pal in a moment, but I want to talk a little bit about this. Uh -huh. um, uh, more about this, the collision of emotional maturity, childhood development, and addiction, but also a little bit culturally, and we'll bring it back to the people. Uh -huh. But culturally speaking, uh, we live in a culture where uh, you said technology, and, when I'm, and I don't think you just mean phones and computers. I think you mean the availability of... 24 hours a day of whatever you want, consumer goods, food, um, the gym, massages, uh, spa services, radio, television, YouTube, all of that. Um, and so there's almost a natural rhythm is not there. Um, because even if we were in the village and all the lights were on 24 hours, which mm -hmm. they weren't 100 years ago, um, we're out of rhythm a little bit. Uh, and then also... You know, people are lonely, uh, lonelier than ever. Uh, I saw a study, which I keep trying to find on the Internet, mm -hmm. but about most people today report having one or two people at most that they can talk to, where in the 80s it was three or four, and in the 60s it was upwards of four and five, mm -hmm. having people that they could intimately discuss things with, not just a surface conversation. So there's part of that going on. And then also not having a definable rite of passage. So one of the things about the United States is we're a younger country, we're a melting pot, 
where other countries and cultures have been around for thousands of thousands of years were kind of like a new experiment. Yeah. Uh, my grandfather, of course, came over through Ellis Island. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, on my other side, I have Norwegian and Swedish people that came over to farm in Minnesota and Illinois mm-hmm. just maybe 40 years before he came over in the 20s. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so we're all, we all have a little bit of our own, you know, whatever country we came from, Europe, Asia, in, um, subcontinent, Africa, we all have these different traditions. People come from all over. I've just named a few. But we have not in the United States agreed upon, which you have told me, a, a set of adult coping skills and a rite of passage to become an adult. And so, with, of course, what I see a lot in my practice, and I, I deal with this a lot, and so do you, is I'm working with either parents or young adults or teenagers, and I'm working with them to develop the ability to have boundaries, to have... Um, uh, to define their role, um, to be able to, especially monetarily today. Yes, the uh, the one uh, the one thing that's going to be in the book for parents of adolescents is uh, that we're talking about is letting them have their own opinion, and the reason that's so important is because one of the things about adolescent time is uh, adolescents really have lost their identity, and if we look at it, uh, this child development piece from a simplified way of looking at it, instead of getting all complicated. When you're a child, let's say from birth to uh, somewhere around 12 or 13, prior to puberty, you have a solid identity. You're, you're so-and-so's son, so-and-so's daughter. P- puberty comes along, and all of a sudden, you're kicked into a new space. You can see adulthood coming. You're not a child anymore. Your whole body has changed. And so now... You're not a child anymore, and you're not an adult yet. So it's kind of like identity lost. And this explains some of the uh, adolescent behavior where it's so important to feel like they're part of something. Mm. So important what other people think of them. Right. Because they have no sense of self, so they're trying to figure out from uh, uh, other people's way of uh, treating them. So as a parent, when you say, I value your opinion equal to mine, even though it's different than mine, I'm telling you that there's that's part of your identity that you are you can be a separate person from me. It's preparing you from that time. It's preparing you for what I call the magic moment, your 18th birthday. In one second, your whole life changed, and not just a little bit. It changed from zero power in this world to all power. And there's no period of adjustment. So that's again goes back to why I started PAL. But now talking to parents of adolescents, now you can do some. You can do some uh, things to prepare your child for the magic moment. And again, PAL is based on the fact that, hey, there's no, uh, there's no uh, period of adjustment uh, from childhood to adulthood. And that's what adolescence is supposed to be, where the, uh, the child can practice being an adult in a safe environment where the parents not only allow them to practice, meaning allow them to make mistakes and fail. Ah, so key. We'll get to that. Yeah. Allow to, to do that and have some understanding of why that's important. So parents need to understand. Uh, it's helpful for them to understand why you need to let your child have a different opinion. Why you, uh, you know, let them share power with you. You're preparing for their adulthood. Right. And let them make mistakes and learn without lecturing Absolutely. them and making them fearful. I've, yeah. I've run into, hold, hold that for a second. Yeah. I've run into so many uh, young adults who are terrified to try anything Absolutely. that isn't exactly going to class and turning in a paper. 
in college or uh, going to their job that they hate because yeah. they hear their parents' voice in their head saying, uh, be careful, uh, uh, is that too much money? Um, uh, make sure you do it right. Um, there's so many people competing in the economy these days. You need to be prepared. You need to be the best. You are the best. You are a kid. We want you. We want to be proud of you. They hear all these messages, and so they're afraid to do anything because everyone knows, and I'm not too far past it. I'm only 34, but the, everyone knows that when you start out trying something new and becoming who you want to become and, and maybe going down a career path or just experimenting and, and do, is this career even for me? Is this major even for me? You're going to make tons of mistakes. Um, right now, I'm starting off podcasting. I'm sure I'm going to make tons of mistakes. And I don't like it. My 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 ego and my you know part of myself goes, ooh, why did that have to happen? But I know now because I've lived this long past my uh, adolescence that um, it's inevitable. Even if I don't like it, um, with each new experience, I'm going to make mistakes. And and that's so important for parents to know uh, and not to fill their child's head with fear, but to prepare them to you know you're making mistakes. That's part of learning. Um, also, I was reading in a book the other day, and this is something I really believe, that when parents put too much of their expectations on their child or or cultural expectations or uh, religious expectations or or too much, uh, they, they are not letting the child be who they are. Let, they're not letting them have their own sense of identity. They're, instead of presenting things as, here's what I believe in, um, you know, you're, a, you're an actual person and I'm honoring your personhood, they're saying you're you're my son and you're my daughter or whatever, way past the age where they need that. They need that concreteness when they're young. But you're right, in adolescence, it's it's training to become an adult because in 18, immediately, you can join the military, go to college, smoke cigarettes, buy lottery tickets. You can't drink yet, but um, you, can, you can move out of your parents' house with no legal repercussions and go move in with a significant other or go live on the street or whatever you want to do. Go jump on the train and... You can own a business. You can own property. Right. That's what I'm saying. By Take out all, loans. All, all, all power sure. in one second, no period of adjustment. And that, uh, so to get back to the, uh, how to help drug proof your child. Yes, is, that's No, <laughs> that's okay. How to get, help drug proof your child then. Uh, one of the things that when my first book came out, I began to hear from parents who said, Mike, this is helping me with my adult son who's an addict. Uh, uh, but I've noticed it's also helping me with my younger kids that are at home. Hmm. So there was there's a takeaway even in my first book. Uh, so now I'm I'm building on that. So it's hard it's hard for parents to to raise a child into adulthood with no instructions. Right. We do the best we can uh, with what we have, uh, but this is a hidden flaw in our culture that ties into so many other things. It ties into so many other things. Uh, the uh, natural thing about adolescence too is. Black and white only thinking. Everything right. everything is uh, either right or wrong, good or bad. Now, what happens is if they don't go into their adulthood and add the gray in between, meaning something could be both good and bad at the same time. Sure. And I could see I could see both sides of that equation. Uh, then that's going to be problematic for them the rest of their life. So uh, this understanding from a parent's uh, this is the drug culture age that we live in. This is providing the motivation then for parents uh, to say, maybe pick up that book and say, all right, there's some things that I maybe look at because it's uncomfortable to let your child have their own opinion. It's uncomfortable to let them uh, make decisions that you don't agree with. 
and let them fail. And I think this is going to be a challenge of the book when it comes out. If it ever comes out, I'm still working. I'm sure it'll come out. I'm going to make sure of that. I'll call you. (laughs) But But I tell you, the problem is, if you look at the closely held beliefs we have as human beings, very personal ones that are not subject to change because they're so important to us. Right. One of those is religion. And notice when people argue about religion, how they can get violent about that. Oh, yes. Another is politics. Same thing. But a third one is parenting. Yes. So it's very, uh, it's going to be very challenging for parents to buy the book and read the book. And it's going to take courage uh, for them. And I think there's plenty out there that have that courage. I, I believe there, I believe they are because people are looking for answers. Yes. Um, uh, any parent that I talked to that read your book has been raving about it and mm-hmm. usually bought copies for other people. Mm-hmm. And so I think that's why um, I, I think people really like your book and there's a need there because people are not sure what to do. Like, I, I can't remember, but I think we were joking about your child. You you had a child and there was no handbook handed to you about what to do. Yeah. I mean, I know there's what to expect when you're expecting and all that, but I mean, really, you know, past when children are little, what do you do with the teenagers? So I, I wanted to touch on a little bit of rite of passages and one of your ideas about kind of a global transformation we can all do, um, taking it from the personal to the global idea but for a moment there i was trying to think about you sparked in me you said parents may not be comfortable mm-hmm. um reading this book and finding this out and and I, I i my idea or assumption there was are parents fearful are, are, this, i'm trying to ask a yes or no question but is this a is this a fear factor are parents afraid of what's going to happen to my child when they leave my house so i've got to control them all i can and then the paradox being that when you control your par- child too tightly, when they do leave your home and go to college or go off to work or go off to the army or whatever they do or go off to the relationship, then they have no idea how to control themselves. And to have an internal locus of control, they've got an external locus of control. The mother and the father or whoever is raising them, um, holding them too close in the nest. And so when you say people are uncomfortable, um, because it means relinquishing a little bit of your control and your and acknowledging your fear. Uh, I think a lot of people parent out of fear. What do you have to say about that? Yes, yes, uh, we do parent out of fear because that's what works and that's what worked on us. And that is natural and normal for parents to do that. But you're right, there is this dynamic between the parent and the child. That any change in, in parenting the child will affect the, the parent as well. So hopefully uh, there's a possibility for the parents to grow and growing in a way, uh, you know, we, we mentioned growing before. One of the ways to, to be more specific about this, if we talk about personal growth, growing more into the person that I am already, but allowing myself to become more of who I already am is a way of looking yes, at growth. Yes. And that's, again, an identity issue. Uh, another way of looking at it is spiritual growth. So if, uh, an emotional growth, meaning yes. that I, I'm more together. One of the definitions that I like from a, from a very famous psychiatrist is that, uh, that uh, one of the ways to look at, uh, at personal and spiritual and emotional growth um, is that I am able to solve my problems better. My problems are not as big as they used to be. I, I can literally outgrow my need for my problems, as she put it. That's what growth can offer me. So growth happens in our culture by going to see a counselor like I did, uh, going to a, to a treatment center like addicts and alcoholics do. There it seems like there has to be something wrong with us 
Hmm. You know, to get yes. our attention. Yes. Uh, a bottom, like they use the term in, in addiction and recovery. He hit his bottom. You know, I hit right. my bottom. Rock bottom, right. Rock, rock bottom. We hear that term. Um, and I think what it's revealing is that our culture is limited because its, its real goal is to be successful financially and have a good education and get married and have children and raise them and be happy. Right. There's that American dream type yes. thing everyone's striving for. Yeah more and more it's not bad it's just that it's incomplete sure, it's, it's incomplete just, it's incomplete where's the where's the rite of passage exactly and so i think that's the challenge that we have uh and one of the ways i look at uh, addiction is it's a wake-up call for a person that they need to grow uh, whether you want to say spiritually emotionally um beyond physical and intellectually See, absolutely so that's that's what we're talking about so uh, the average person can just have a life where they're not growing and be content with that, but they won't be, they won't really have a sense of fulfillment mm. with that. Yes. So that's the theory. And yet they need some kind of a wake up call. Well, that's where rite of passage comes in. Right. So in cultures, tribal cultures who have a structured rite of passage, the children see it coming when they're younger. They already know what's coming. They're still afraid of it. Sure. But it consists of three parts. All the rites of passage have three parts. Number one is education. You're learning about what, how an adult operates. This is what a man does, uh, about spirituality, about sexuality, about uh, your your place in this world, uh, about relationships, about friendships, about fun, about everything. Work. You know, all of those things. Because right. all of those are different from ad, for, for adolescents than they are uh, for adults. It, it, a lot of them are. So education's a part. So in tribal cultures, you're not taught by your parents. You're taught by the elders. Right. And so there's a period of education. And then something else happens. Puberty kicks in. Right. Puberty kicks in. A good example. Uh, one example is a tribe. Uh, the elders will call the boy in and say, here's a knife. It's time for you to go out. Leave the village. Go out into the jungle. Go out into the desert. Go out into the forest, wherever you live. Count the number of sons, number of days. After 12 sons, come back. The child invariably says, I'm scared. I'll die out there. It's natural and normal to have that fear. It's fear of death. Although they may not totally understand what death is, but it's fear of death. And so here's what the uh, elders say. And this, is, I think, is very powerful for us to pick up as parents and as people in this culture. The elders look at them and say, look, we believe in you. You're supposed to be afraid. We know you're afraid, but we believe in you. In fact, we believe in you more than you believe in yourself. Mm. That's why we're sending you out this is the trial part. We're sending you out there. If we didn't believe in you, we'd let you stay here where you're safe. Ah. But you would never grow in to the man. You would always be a boy, but you'd be in a man's body. And you would actually be dead inside your heart. So we will not allow that. We will not tolerate that. And so the child's still scared to death, goes out there, and he could die out there. Sure. He could die out there. Uh, but what happens is... Uh, Traditionally, what will happen is the, the, the boy will be scared to death and hide and, and run and, you know, and just start talking to God and who knows all the different things. Sure. Do. Not even hungry, not even sleeping at first. And after a while, hunger. Mm-hmm. Got a knife. He'll go find something to eat. Right. After a few days, he starts to transform. And this is, this is transformation. Transformation is different than change. It's a change beyond the ability to comprehend it. Right. It's unspeakable. There's no words for it. So what happens is uh, eventually they begin to get 
a sense of I'm part of nature. I can deal with nature all by myself. And this is important because now they realize I'm a separate person. And at the same time, I'm part of my village and part of my family. Yes. But I'm part of nature. And that's kind of what's missing in our culture a lot, I think. It was much more that when we were farming communities because we were close to the land. Absolutely. Um, I have so many comments on this, and then let's get to part three. So part three, then, he comes back, right. and they have the ceremony for him. Ah. Yes, you are the man. And, you know, you will talk about your adventures, and we will listen. And, and by the way, after this ceremony, now, this is so important, we have a ceremony for the parents to let him go. Ah, uh, yes. So those are the three parts of the rite of passage. The education, the trial, the ceremony. Interestingly enough, Israel has all three. Yes. Israel has, it's one of the few country, civilized countries that I know of that has all three. They have the education, they have the ceremony, and the trial is the uh, universal service that they have. The military, you have to yes. enroll for Everyone, one or two years, is I it? I think it's, it's either 18 months or two years. Something like that. But at age 18, you automatically do that. You have no choice, which, by the way, I think would be a great idea for our country, and that's another subject. But that would help our society in in a hundred different ways. Sure. You know. Well, well, we'll, yeah. well, actually, since you're on that, and we'll go back to the parent uh, mm-hmm. metaphor with the ceremony and the and the becoming becoming an adult. But uh, I did like your idea about um, everyone in the U.S. having to sign up for some type of program. Not to say the military, but no, what no. were you calling it the other day? Universal service. That means that they might go into the military, but they also might work on roads. They sure. might also work, might work in forests. They might help work in the in the national parks. That's how national parks were built by the WPA in the 30s. Right. And those were men who went into... And by the way, when they did the WPA, uh, the public works uh, thing, uh, they actually used the military, the, the, the government used the military to organize it. Sure. So they had uh, the organization of them, and they built the national parks. They built dams. They built roads, and we've kind of forgot about that. But so, it, and they don't have to all go into the into uh, into the army or, or to the uh, military, right? And also, I, I believe not only with infrastructure and parks, but I'm thinking they could also choose to do social services in the cities or the country or in the rural areas, absolutely, to help uh, kids. I mean, yeah. our schools are in desperate need of, of yeah. more hands on deck and mentors for the kids in the urban and rural area. Well, really anywhere. Uh, kids are needing mentors these days, people that are plugged in. So I, I think not only, I think that would be fantastic. Um, I don't know if we'd ever get that implemented, that it's required. That would be, that would be a, a horrendous big uh, challenge because there's so many pr- private interests that get paid for the things that this would get rid of. That's the, correct. The negative things this would get rid of. It wouldn't totally get rid of crime, but it would take such a great big bite of it. It wouldn't totally get rid of uh, drug addiction. And alcoholism, sure. but it would take such a big bite out to of it. To give people purpose, po- meaning. Poverty. It, would, it sure. would take a bite out of poverty. And we'd stop building all these jails and prisons. And so so that's the, that's the only political thing that I really talk about these days. It's just a personal thing that I, that I believe strongly in. Well, it's very utilitarian and practical because it's not only helping the country and the people and, and uh, the environment we're living in, but it's helping young people feel that they're a part of something that they have Absolutely. skills, that they can work on a team with other people their age. Um, that and, and when you really serve people, which we've been talking about, when you when you give up the when you give up your pursuit of happiness mm-hmm. and your your rigid way of, 
of needing me to have what I need to be content, so you think. Mm-hmm. And you serve others, and you give up of yourself, even doing some volunteer work, even just a couple hours a year or, or whatever. There's a sense of happiness that comes from that and contentment and joy that is, again, can only be explained through transformation because I cannot exactly. explain it to you if you have not experienced it. Exactly. And so yeah. right there, uh, I believe you're right. It would take a bite out of uh, crime, drug ad- uh, addiction. But also, I-, I think it would take a bite out of um, out of people just buying things to fill their life because they feel empty inside. It would be a transformation of our country and, and, a, and a positive one. It would just be hard to get everybody all on board to that. But but what, 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 <laughs> but the positive things you're talking about for the adolescents yes. is exactly what identity is all about. So when we talk about person, he just doesn't know who he is yet, you know, we heard that saying, or trying to find himself. We, we have sayings in our culture that indicate sure. concepts of, about identity, but it's a challenging thing to wrap your, your arms around the concept of what do you mean by identity? It's very, uh, very ethereal in a way. Um, but the, uh, what, what happens is with this trial, a foundation comes together for the person. They have a foundation within their mind, within their personhood, to build their life on. So the analogy we use in, in recovery is you're building sort of the house of your life, which is your career, mm-hmm. your schooling, your family, marriage, your children, uh, you know, your home. That's the house of your life. But what if you have no foundation? Mm-hmm. That's where drugs and alcohol comes in. Right. It will fall. Right. And then, well, what if you then say, well... That's too hard to build a foundation. So I'll just build a smaller house. That'll fall. Okay, a spiritual house. That'll fall. So this right. helps us understand the chronic relapsers. There's a term in recovery where people just are not getting it and they're just going into treatment rooms uh, after treatment and stuff. So it's just so uh, this concept then of universal service would be our civilized form of trial. Now, look at the addicts and alcoholics today, a lot of them. They're creating their own trials, high-risk behaviors. Sure. You know, and they're creating their own trials. So incarceration. Incarceration. Uh, and, breakup. Yep. Uh, disease. Driving on, drunk and on drugs and all the things. High, risking of needles. And right. It's like they don't care about themselves because and, and, they don't really know themselves. And that's what the, what the, uh, the education part uh, and the trial part so important and i see this even with people that aren't um getting into those addictions they're getting into other addictions or having difficulties with uh young adults i work with uh young adults as you know a lot people between 18 and 32 that are just trying to figure out what to do vocationally which i'll probably talk about in another episode but what to do with their life how to have relationships how to have boundaries with their parents Um, all of these things, and I, I believe you're right uh, that there isn't the education, and there and there's not the uh, the trial. There certainly is the college graduation, or I got my first job celebration. Sure, sure. So there's a ceremony, but the yeah. ceremony isn't celebrating. I think fully what needs to happen because a lot of times kids will get their job, they'll move out, or they'll move in with a significant other, or they'll go to college, and guess who's still paying for everything. Mom and dad. And I know that we live in a hard economic time and it's been difficult since 2008 at least. But that doesn't mean that we should just continually pay our child's cell phone bill till they're 45. So um, with that, because that isn't teaching them anything. So parents are almost having to create their own system through PAL, uh, you know, your group, through going to counseling and therapy uh, because we don't have an agreed upon 
norm. And, and that is one of the biggest things I see missing because I, I know you got comments here, but yeah. they, I, you said, uh, you know, when, when the boy, they said, you could, we could keep you in the village, boy, yeah. but then you'll be a, a, a boy in a man's body. And that boy will be empty inside and they will hate themselves. And we can say the same thing about women as well. Absolutely. Of course, we're just using boys as an yeah. example. But um, I see that a lot because of, of, of her, a person doesn't move out of their parents' home, even if it, you know, sometime without having those boundaries. or And they don't have to not move out. It could be that they moved into a dorm or an apartment, but their parent is too enmeshed mm-hmm. a, a, in their life to the point where they're, they're trying to help them, they think. Uh, they're not ready to leave yet. They need more help. They need my nurturing. They're having emotional breakdowns when their laundry is dirty and their dishes are in the sink. So I'm going to come over and clean their house or right. I'm going to pay for a maid or I'm going to buy them a new car when they crash their old one. And what they're trying to do is help, help, help. Um, uh, they're not ready to leave the nest, but they don't understand that leaving the nest is the trial for some kids. Just leaving home and not being able to rely on you for every little thing is their trial and they're going to be emotional about it. And they're going to be upset and they're going to say, I'm going to die, mom. I'm going to die, dad. I need more money. Mm -hmm. And they're like, well, why did you spend all your money on fast food? Why didn't you buy groceries? And that kid needs to go through that. They're not going to starve. Yeah, exactly. They're going to find a way. Exactly. They're going to find a way. And that that is the way. But it's dangerous. So parents are scared because our cities and and places people go, I mean, they are full of dangerous things. There may not be wild jaguars running around Phoenix, but there sure as heck are a lot of drug dealers. Yeah. There's a lot of people uh, ready to get you into a bad relationship of domestic violence. Um, there's uh, terrible uh, pyramid schemes and awful jobs that people get roped into. There's a lot of pitfalls out there. A lot of pitfalls. Yeah, so anyway, sorry, I know you got a lot to say, no, but I that just, just reminded me of I was just going to say that, that one of the things you reminded me of there was of the universal service it would help with so many things, crime and drug use and uh but also mental health issues too. Yes. So uh, that just reminded me of that. But it, but it also triggered me to think back that one of the things that we're telling the parents is that uh, you are not the cause of the problem that your child has. Sure. But you have become you have become made part of the problem by them when they have the addiction. Right. So uh, the combination of this uh, lack of uh, emotional growth. Plus, the addiction together is what creates hopelessness for the parents. Because we could have a person, we could have a young man who's 25 living in the basement, but he's not, he doesn't have an addiction issue. It's problematic. But there still can be forward movement and learning through experience. Yes. So, so we don't have hopeless parents. They're frustrated. But if you add the addiction in there, now the addiction shuts off the ability for the person to learn from their experiences. Uh. Now you have Groundhog Day. Oh. Every day is the same. So let's talk about Groundhog Day. Every day is the same. Do you want to talk about Groundhog Day? I know you, I know you, yeah. uh, I'm a big fan of this movie. I've been a fan of this movie since I was a young person. I saw it in the theaters in the 90s. Uh, somehow my parents let me go see that. I don't know how. I think uh, maybe I was being watched by somebody. So anyway, um, but I know uh, you're a big fan too. So tell me more uh, about that. This is something that someone sent me, and I want to acknowledge this is not from me, but this is someone sent me, and it says Groundhog Day, Groundhog Day and Emotional Maturity. One of my favorite movies of the 1990s is Groundhog Day. As someone in recovery, I feel a unique connection to it. Bill Murray plays the unforgettable character Phil Connors. Phil, unfortunately, is trapped into reliving the same day over and over again. His initial responses, like anyone in active addiction, are selfish. Not being able to move past his imprisonment, he tries, unsuccessfully, to kill himself. Yes. Eventually, he begins to adapt a sober state of mind. Phil accepts his circumstances. 
accepts acceptance. He accepts his circumstances. His motivations and behaviors transition from self-absorbed to a sense of generosity towards others. That's a transition period he goes through. He lets go of living his life simply for what he impulsively desires and instead focuses on doing the next right thing. His behavior becomes amended and he embraces the true meaning of becoming an adult man. By the end of the movie, self-seeking has slipped away. Phil's whole attitude and outlook upon life has changed. By giving up his impulsive desires and instead following what he believes to be the most righteous path, he gains more than he ever desired. Phil Connors has found sobriety. Ah, yes, so, and identity. And identity, yes. And and a sense of mindful ease and contentment and joy and gratitude for helping people. Absolutely. Because he starts helping people in that movie. Go ahead. Obviously, it's a metaphorical story. Sure. But if we look at uh, that that creative story, he was in a situation he had no control over, and he was just thrust into it. Adolescence. Right. <laughs> he went only by his uh, desires, his impulses, and tried to control everything and tried to change the situation that happened to him. Adolescence. Other people tried to tell him what to do. He rebelled. Adolescence. Yes. He already knew the answer to everything. When everyone started to talk to him, he already knew the answers. Again, adolescence. So those are three of the major uh, signs of... Uh, or, characteristics of adolescence it's helpful for parents to know number one uh, teenagers know everything number two they love to rebel so they'll do things to get you to get on their case so that they can rebel yes they'll get you to argue with them so that they can rebel oh yeah and and the third thing is they're struggling to find out their identity but may not really know that as far as being able to aware they're not necessarily aware of their awareness and and so they're seeking transformation you can't get to adulthood uh, without growing into it, and that's transformation. And transformation is the kind of change that is different than regular change. And it's the kind of change where you take two opposing, an example of that is you take two opposite things and collide them together. Mm-hmm. They don't fit. So a good example of that verbally would be uh, quiet, uh, uh, wordless talking would be a good example. Uh, um, another one would be uh, uh, patient action. Mm. So, and again, children are locked into black and white thinking. Black and white thinking, and I mean black and white only thinking, black and white only thinking is a natural developmental stage for children because it allows them to be guided while they're young and learning about life, and it's, and it's unambiguous. So, Dad, when you said don't cross the street without looking both ways first, do you mean all the time, every time? Right. <laughs> you don't have to say that with them because now they know that you've told them crossing the street with looking both ways is good. Therefore, not doing it is bad. Right. So it's a very, it's a very simplified way of thinking that simplifies the world for them so that they can learn some basics to stay alive. I think they call that concrete thinking level in the literature, and then we're moving towards abstract, which is the gray. Exactly. Now, here's what happens. The way way that we're created in nature is we have a dual brain. Yes. Not a tripart brain, not a unibrain, a a dual brain. It's just perfect for black and white only thinking. Sure. And so now we have a receptacle because the two brains are not connected directly. They're connected through a cable, the corpus callosum. 
So the whole left side of the brain is interconnected, the whole right side is interconnected, but they are not connected to each other directly. So there's a separation here. And this is what allows us to separate uh, things that are good and bad, things that are right and wrong, which is part of, uh, you know, we all learn that. So children in adolescence, if they don't develop the gray, which is in between, right? that's what the rite of passage is all about. That's what the trial is all about. They have to have an experience that goes beyond good and bad, right and wrong. Because when you can dis- discover what's right and wrong and what's good and bad, then you can control your world. So it's only when you're in a world that you can't control that you find resources and strengths within you that you didn't even know you had that are part of your identity to become the person that you are meant to be. And that's transformation. That's transformation. And we're continuing to transform. I was actually going to ask you later at the end, one of the questions I always ask people when I'm interviewing them is, um, my new clinic is, of course, Grand Rapids Mental Health, and our uh-huh. tagline is, where transformation begins. Uh-huh. Uh, because I, I feel like I'm, I'm continually transforming, it, and that's my goal throughout yeah. life. But I was just going to say, what does transformation mean to Mike Speakman? Well, if we look at it from a practical standpoint, it means doing things that you've never done before. Right. For instance, it means being willing to go into the unknown because then you have to give up control. Right. Trying new experiences, being open to new thoughts, challenging yourself and letting other people challenge you. So, for instance, when you tell me uh, about your political beliefs and they're the opposite of mine. Sure. I already know you're wrong. Sure. You know, I already know you're wrong. But if I sort of in my mind force myself to be open, which is uh, an unspeakable way, you can't tell a person how to do that. You can give clues and hints, but it has to be done internally. Um, so another, so one of the ways is to challenge your own beliefs. And the way you do that is looking for agreement where you, where what you're saying is the total opposite of what I'm saying. There is no agreement, but I'm looking for it anyway. Sure. And I'm trying to be open to that. Where's something we have in common versus what, versus I'm just going to put you away in your category and exactly. label you. What, what's something in between us? And that, and that even brings me into two quick comments mm-hmm. um, about holding on to the opposites, which is a, co- a concept from Carl Jung in depth psychology, yeah. where we sometimes, we, 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 want, we have this reaction, this judgment, this automatic thing in our mind where we want to go good or bad or left or right or yeah. black or white. Yeah. And, and, and what Carl Jung urged people to do in, their, in the counseling was not to label and not to jump to conclusions, but to sit there. And maybe that means journaling or thinking or whatever or talking with people but holding on to those two opposite concepts. Mm-hmm. Um, for instance, you know, joy and sorrow mm-hmm. sometimes are paired together. Yeah. For instance, um, you know, the difficulties in life, but also the beautiful parts of life, yeah. those beautiful moments. And, and being able to kind of hold those in our mind and our soul uh, so that we can fully feel like we're alive. We're yeah. not just running from one or the other. Um, we're, we're, we're meeting ourselves in the gray. And then also, this is a whole nother podcast yeah. about mindfulness. Yeah. One of the things that we do in mindfulness, um, you know, what the studies say is if you're, uh, there's so many studies that say this, I'm just going to quote it. If you're doing 20 or 30 minutes of the mindfulness meditation a day for 60 to 90 days, literally in brain scans, you have more gray matter, mm-hmm. which helps you deal with stress more adequately. Mm-hmm. But one of the things that comes out of mindfulness a lot of times is not only are you literally getting gray matter in your brain built up and, and more resilience, you are actually being able to tolerate ambiguity. 
That's a, good a lot way to put more. It. Yeah, that's a good way to put it. And you are able to be in today because mm-hmm. today really is all we know as a person, and we are only living in today, whatever today's date is. And we and and with people, we're constantly, of course, just like black and white, going future past, mm-hmm. future past. I'm in the future. I'm th- only thinking about the future. So I'm going to just eat. Um, for the next week, I'm going to stay up, drink Red Bull, and eat McDonald's to get my mm-hmm. project done. But I'm not thinking about the actual future, which is if I do that, the, the thing of what's going to happen to my body exactly. um, or, or my productivity. Uh, we're, we're, not, we're out of balance. And so sitting in mindfulness, even if our brain is all over the place, like a squirrel, like mine can be sometimes, yeah. brings us to a place of, of being in the present, which is an adult, I, I think is an adult skill um, that is hard to learn mm-hmm. because you can't learn it by intellectual means and you can't learn it um i can't remember what the other one was you said but you it it is an emotional and sort of spiritual experience uh to be able to sit in the present moment and to to uh listen to your fears because your fears are going to come up and to to listen to your anger and we're going to get to anger Mm -hmm. and to listen to your emotions that may be uncomfortable and then notice that they're just like weather passing through and eventually we will come through the trial I've been through so many trials. Uh, I threw myself into them. I didn't know why, but I think looking back at my life, I threw myself into all sorts of trials, uh, even though I was terrified because I was sick of how I was living. I was sick of what was going on in my life. I was sick of where I lived. I was sick of who my friends were. I was sick of my behavior. Mm -hmm. And so I would say, no, I'm doing this now. I mean, I I literally asked my parents to transfer schools as a Mm -hmm. child and as a high schooler three times. Mm -hmm. I was the impetus. I Mm -hmm. said, I want to change schools. I don't like this school. I don't like what's going on here. And I thought, of course, in my adolescence, probably this is an escape. There's a new horizon. There's a happy place. But what it really did was there was no place that was perfect. It forced me to deal with my difficulties with peers. It Mm -hmm. forced me to deal with my difficulties with dating. Mm -hmm. It forced me to deal with some of the subjects like math that mm-hmm. I was terrible at yeah. and I couldn't get out of it and I had to face it. And therefore I did transform slowly mm-hmm. and hopefully we're still transforming. That's a good point. Uh, Cause one of the other things in the book of, uh, uh, for how to help drug proof your child is to let your son or daughter uh, when they're adolescents make decisions about their life and their body and themselves that you normally would not let them do. For instance, green hair, for instance, sure. move to another, another uh, school. But, uh, but I want to get back to what you're saying, because the way that we were built, the way our brain is built, we're built to be trapped in judgment of black and white only thinking, because two is exactly opposites. There's not, when you have three, there's not opposites. Sure. When you have one, there's not opposites. So two is, is the number. So, so transformation means I use my brain to create software the gray, the gray in between the black and white is software. The brain is the hardware. Yes. So I'm born with the limited uh, hardware. And maybe in some uh, Christian religion, they might actually say you're born sinful. Sure. Or sinful nature. Sure. Uh, uh, you're born fallen. Different words that we have indicating that we're born with a handicap, with a problem. And I think we are born. I don't necessarily agree with different words about that. Sure. But I think to think that we are born to naturally learn to be happy, I think is simply is simply not true. Well, absolutely. because We're we challenged. Have... We're born challenged. Sure. And, and just, you know, speaking of the last couple thousand years, yeah. uh, having anxiety was very helpful to keep us safe from uh, lions, tigers, and bears, and Roman soldiers, yeah. uh, and 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 other tribes yeah, exactly. that are coming to kill us and take yeah. our stuff. So, 
being anxious and that problem of always looking for a problem yeah. is actually preservation. Um, you know, for instance, if I if when I'm driving around this city, uh, you better believe I got in the back of my mind death. Yeah, uh, I know I need to be aware and not looking at my cell phone and not getting too into the music I'm listening to or the conversation I'm having because I need to be watching out for cars. And yeah. just when I was coming here, I was taking a left at a green arrow mm -hmm. and the other people on the other side were taking the left at their green arrow. Mm -hmm. But somebody saw the green and mm -hmm. guess what they did? Come straight. through. They started coming straight through and we all honked and it was a big truck. And luckily they didn't hit anybody and they looked embarrassed. Yeah. Uh, but, uh, you know, I don't want that experience to let, I don't want anxiety to drive my car. Exactly. I want anxiety to be in the back seat going, hey, remember, this is serious. We're here. This is serious. Mm -hmm. But, you know, like you said, we're born with this presupposition uh, pre to look for the negative and mm -hmm. to not be happy. So that being happy is, of course, contentment, joy. That's a whole nother podcast. Yeah, but, yeah. but, 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 but uh, learning, uh, learning to be present with what is can bring that relief. Yes. Um, to know that. Anyway, go ahead. So what I'm going to say then is, if you then are stuck with black and white only thinking, then we could say you're stuck in your adolescence. Sure. Without a rite of passage, then it's not. It's going to go unnoticed. So there I was at 30, 36 years old, uh, laying there, you know, wanting to end my life. I often say this to people, if we could go in a time machine and go back in time to the younger Mike and go, Mike, we just interrupted what you're doing here. Why are you doing this? Do you want to die? Right. I know me. I would have said, no, I don't want to die. And then we could say, you and I go together here. I could say, well, then why are you trying to kill yourself? Sure. Then I, I would have said, because I can't live with this pain. It was emotional uh, It was emotional pain, yes. but I didn't even know what that was. I mean, I, I know it's emotions, but I had no idea what it was. And it was unrelenting and it was off the scale and I couldn't live with that. Sure. I mean, it was day after day and it wasn't going Tormenting. Away. It was tormented because of the heartbreak of she my wife leave me so and then if i then if we said well wait a minute mike what if there's a way to end the pain without having to kill yourself i know me i would have said there isn't sure and then uh. then what if we would said okay one other question mike what if there is a way to end that pain emotional pain that you have without having to kill yourself what if there was a way to end it without having to kill yourself i know me here's what i would have said no, if we had said, what if there is a way to end the pain without killing yourself that you don't know about? Oh, sure, sure. Then I would have said, there isn't, I would have caught myself. Right. There isn't anything I don't, or I would have caught myself before I embarrassed myself. Sure. So now, if you then said, Mike, off, off the wall question, do you ever feel like you're a child inside? Would, Hell no, look at my car, look at my house, look at my life. Yeah, I've got it all together. Yeah, that's before that incident. Yes. After that incident, I, I was, I was, I was opened in some ah, ways. I was opened open. in some ways. Yes. So I went in and called my sister. She gave me the name of a counselor and I couldn't wait to call him. I couldn't wait to see him. I went to see him and I just unloaded a lot. It was a two hour session with this guy. And he was a good person for me because he listened. He listened to me. Now, I went to see him a lot. He was a big part of my recovery. At a certain point, maybe a, a month from there, a month of counseling, maybe a year of counseling, at some point, once I had my awakening and opening, if you had said, Mike, you're 37 now, do you ever feel like a child inside? Different answer than I would have would before, I would have thought. I would have went, 
Yeah, sometimes I, I think I do now that you mention it. Because I was open. Open. And I had aware I started to have self-awareness. Sure. How can you have identity without self-awareness? So anyway, that was just my story. But you yes. see where my story kind of ties into my work. It ties into it. And being open is one of the hardest things to teach somebody again, because you can't really be open unless you humble yourself. Um, have so the self-awareness. Take do the, the risk of do being, the work. Take the risk of being uh, uh, vulnerable, vulnerable, and, and criticized, sure. and you know, put down, and embarrassed, and all that other stuff. And who's the philosopher? Was it Aristotle or Socrates? Somebody said I should have been prepared for this, but they said, "All I know is that I know nothing." Mm-hmm. I think that was Socrates. I think that was one of we'll, those guys. We'll be fact-checked, I'm sure. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but um, but that is such an important thing to live on, uh, live by. I think the same thing happened to me after my counseling experience. Before my counseling. You know, when I went into counseling at 24 or whatever, 23, I, I knew everything. Yeah. Everyone told me, hey, do you know about this? Of course I do. Yeah. I know. And then I'll tell you more about it. Absolutely. I had this, you know, closed attitude, this haughtiness to myself that, you know, I is regrettable. But, um, you know, I'm, you know, I've, I've, tra- I've transformed and I've made peace with that. But after counseling, I was like, wow, I know nothing. And yeah. the more I get into my career, um, you know, 10 years in. I keep learning new things and learning new things and clients teach me new things as well. And if I can have that, if I can have that attitude every morning when I go in, yeah. that I sure I've got my skills and I've got to be confident that I have those techniques, but if I can be open to what they're bringing, then I know that I can help that person because they need me to be open yeah. because they're trying to be open and and they need that openness to find out who they are and 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 have that self-awareness and all those things that they need to heal and maybe they need tools that day but sometimes we just need someone to listen absolutely but that transformation is also what the addict has to do yes they need to transform and so since since the general population does not understand recovery and addiction then it's kind of challenging that difference difference in mindset and knowledge base is different so the parents who don't really know about it are in a different uh, different state a different point of view, uh, but the transformation pressure on the addict to transform creates a little minor pressure for the parents to do some of their own work and to self-improve. Well, and, and that's another thing, and I want to make sure we talk about PAL before we move on to anger, but that's another thing I, I've seen a lot is when a parent comes in, no matter if it's a parent of an adolescent or a parent of a young adult or a parent of an adult, and, and they say, well, you know what, you need to fix them. They need to change. They're yeah. a bunch of, they're making stupid decisions. Yeah. But what we don't see, you know, the parents may not see because they're angry and confused and hurt, is that if they do a little growing too, mm-hmm. and they change a little bit of how they're, how they're acting, that is eventually possibly going to get a payoff from the person that's struggling with the addiction. Now, of course, it's not going to be an instant payoff no. because they didn't also become instantly addicted. Exactly. It took them a long time, and that dynamic is going to. I always said to people, I, I've a lot when I when I work with people that are struggling with addiction and have quit, or you know, they're in recovery in some form, they're in the action stage. They mm-hmm. keep coming in. And they say, "Dang it, Paul! My parent, my brother, my sister, my roommate, my boyfriend, my girlfriend—they're still treating me like I'm using. Mm-hmm. What the heck is this? Yeah. I'm so pissed off." And I say. Well, I read somewhere, and this is true, I have no idea where I read this, I can't find this anywhere, mm-hmm. that your your people in your life are going to treat you the same for six months. That's how long it's going to take them to mm-hmm. realize that you've actually changed, because yeah. it's not about what you said before, it's about your action. And I, and I ask them, how many times did you tell them, I've changed, when you had no intention of changing? Exactly. And they said, well, I lied a lot, and I yeah. told them that. Exactly. And then 
you know, six months later, if you stick to your guns and you're and you're working on your recovery and you're being honest, even if you have a slip up and a relapse, they're going to start to trust you. And then you're going to see that change yeah. on their end. That's a good point. The, the saying comes to mind that uh, repetition is the mother of all new learning. and It takes time to change old habits. And so, but, but the point being is that the parents at first don't know that they need to make some changes in how they're parenting as a, as a powerful way to help their son or daughter. Initially, they think all you got to do is change the son or daughter. Yes, that is, and there is no magic pill for that. No, you no. can spend $60,000 on rehab, and if you don't change your parenting dynamics, the money you're giving your child, your boundaries, the way you're talking to them, they may come out and do the exact same. Not that it's all on you, because right. they still might be hanging out with their friends, and they might still be hell-bent on doing what they want to do. But if we don't change our relationship with the person struggling with the addiction, um, we can be sure that they're not going to change their dynamic. But you can see how hard it is for them to change because without the rite of passage, they don't have their wake-up call and a period of adjustment either. That's correct. So yes. That's... So we want to have empathy for both sides. Yeah. Yes. Uh, I wanted to I want to talk about anger, but I really mm -hmm. want to talk real quick about PAL and just how can people learn about PAL and, and why is PAL so valuable? Parents of Addicted yeah. Loved Ones. Yeah, PAL yeah. is Parents of Addicted Loved Ones. It's a... It's a, a a group, uh, a self-help group that I started uh, about 11 years ago. And um, about two years ago, I let parents take it over because I had run it for a while. And a professional should not be running uh, a parent support group that is run by parents. And uh, it's different than Al-Anon in that it's not a 12-step format. It's an educational format. So we have nine different educational topics. And we're basically... Uh, teaching parents, these are uh, new ways that you can start seeing your child in your mind's eye instead of seeing them as a child, see them that the adult that they are. Uh, here are some new ways of talking to them, help, helping them understand this concept of rite of passage missing uh, in a very simplified way. We call it delayed emotional growth. And by revealing to them that in most cases there's two problems. There's the addiction, but there's also the delayed emotional growth, which is the child development piece. Right. Those two issues collide together to create a spectrum of problems. And if you only understood the addiction and recovery piece, you, you would not be able to clearly see that, that whole spectrum of problems. You'd only see bits and pieces of some of them. And therefore, you could be chasing your tail a lot because you're not working on, on the delayed emotional growth part. You're only working on the recovery addiction part. And therefore, that other part could continue on and not change and still be uh, an instigator of, uh, of the behaviors. So in other words, we're saying that delayed emotional growth is as big or bigger an issue than the, than the addiction itself. Right. And the two interact with each other. And until you get to the point where you're working on both simultaneously, then it's potentially that you're going to be hopeless for a lot of years. Yes. And so the PAL group meets in 17 states, as I said in the introduction of the podcast. Um, and the way people get a hold of the of the PAL group, and there's, what, about 19 meetings here in Phoenix or something like yes, that? Yes, uh-huh. And then there's a few in Tucson and Arizona. But it's palgroup.org, which is P-A-L, yes. PAL, group, of course, you know how to spell group, dot O-R-G. Or just Google search Parents of Addicted Loved Ones or Mike Speakman. So, uh, and it's a nonprofit. Yeah. Uh, you can find a meeting on there, a great video, uh, great information on there. And, uh, you know, if you're in a state that does not have PAL, 
heck, you could start your own group eventually if yep. you get some training from the board of executives at PAL. Um, and there's telephone meetings available, apparently, also. Um, you guys are on Facebook now. I didn't realize that. Mm-hmm. Um, and, of course, you can contact PAL. Also, the old-fashioned way, way, let's go there, 480-300-4712. So if, if you're not in on the Internet, uh, of course, I don't know how you'd find my podcast, but, heck, <laughs> if you don't like the Internet too much, then you can just call them. Um, and learn you could actually learn to be a facilitator and, and things like that. But if you're just a parent, uh, you can hopefully find one in your area. And it is different than Al-Anon. It is educational and, you know, uh, Al-Anon and, and AA are fantastic programs. Some people um, aren't a fan of the 12 steps being uh, in order like that. And so uh, I think PAL is just... A, a way for people to learn more, and it's very uh, specialized to the parents of uh, and or family members. Spouses too can benefit spouses, because sure. uh, what will happen is the uh, the addicted spouse will act like a child, and the uh, healthy spouse will will fall into the parent role. Oh yeah! So yes. by learning about these parent child dynamics in uh, in PAL, it can be helpful for them as well. Yes, and that's something that's interesting. It reminds me of. Um, it reminds me of uh, my training with Dr. Robert J. Myers and Associates for the Community Reinforcement Approach, mm-hmm. and they have a whole book um, also called Getting Your Loved One Sober, uh, which is talking specifically to the uh, spouse or partner, whatever, of mm-hmm. the of the addiction, a person afflicted with addiction, to, to work on the behaviors, but um, also the emotional side. But I like your book better, but anyway, <laughs> I'm saying that live I'm on TV, on, on the podcast. So... Um, and kind of, so if you're interested in PAL, we gave you the information. I want to talk about anger and your anger book. So let's talk about that. And there you have it. That was part one of my conversation with Mike Speakman. In the next podcast, there will be part two, which involves our conversation about anger and how to stay cool in an angry world. Thanks so much for listening to The Intentional Clinician. If you like our podcast, feel free to share it with friends and family. Also, you can rate us on iTunes, and that would be awesome. I hope to continue serving the online community here with podcasts coming out at least once a week for a while. If I can keep up this pace, there'll be more interviews and also my own thoughts. Thanks so much for listening. This has been Paul Krause. Recording you just listened to consists of the personal opinions of Paul Krauss, and while these are based upon the literature he has read and his experience in the field, they should not be viewed as the definitive opinion on the subject. Listening to this podcast is not a substitute for treatment. If you are in need of counseling, don't hesitate to make an appointment with a local counselor in your area. You can find this by going to psychologytoday.com or talking to your local insurance company. You can also make an appointment with Paul or one of his associates by emailing or calling Paul. The information for this is on healthforlifegr.com or paulkrauscounseling.com. 
If you are in a crisis, please call 911 or the National Suicide Prevention Line. Call 1-800-273-8255. All right, hope everyone has a good day. So I'm here with Mike Speakman, uh-huh. asking him questions. We're talking about cinnamon rolls. <laughs> so Mike, tell me when you first had a cinnamon roll. I can remember my first cinnamon roll when I was probably about eight years old or so, and uh, you could smell the the wonderful smell of it baking in the oven. My mom was a great cook. Oh, she made your own cinnamon rolls. You didn't oh, go yeah. to Cinnabon or Dunkin' oh, Donuts or anything. Absolutely, she she was a great German cook. So we had. Uh, good meals. In fact, all of our kids, there's four of us, we were all spoiled by her cooking. And it made it hard when we got older and moved away, and where are we going to get that same kind of uh, cooking? Plus, when you marry somebody, uh, you know, my, my brother and I, you know, you've got a wife, she better be a good cook. So it did kind of set some, uh, some uh, important things in, from the past that, that went into the future there, all because of a cinnamon roll. <laughs> that's that's good. So you're a natural at this. Okay. We'll just pause for a second.